1: consumer cellular when freedom calls we're here to
0: answer call us at 1-888-FREEDOM half the cost savings based on cost of consumer cellular single line five gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by t-mobile and verizon may 2023
1: i'm alan alda and this is clear and vivid conversations about connecting and communicating
2: All the books that I've written about breakthrough ideas follow a completely different pattern, which I I called years ago I called the slow hunch. Which is instead of a light bulb moment or an aha moment, you you get this inkling that there's something worth exploring or some idea out there. You don't really know why. You don't know why you're you're obsessed with this, but you're drawn into it. And It's only over time that that it actually kind of crystallizes into something more powerful. So if you set up your life looking for eureka moments and looking for epiphanies, you actually won't succeed. What you want to do is cultivate these, like, hints that are floating around. That's what the truly transformative ideas are going to come from. Stephen Johnson has written a dozen books about how we come up
1: with ideas and how we make decisions. His books are full of wonderful stories, like how Darwin made the decision about whether or not to get married, or how a defecating duck helped lead to the computer. So when he visited our studio in Manhattan, I knew we were in for a fascinating conversation. This is so great to be able to talk to you because we talk most of the time on this show about relating and communicating and relating to other people. Mm. And I think your work, at least some of your work, deals with relating to our own brains. Right, and that's fascinating to me because whatever the project is, whether it's making a big decision or trying to find the next big idea that we want to engage in, we've got to get in touch with the back of our head somehow where, where all the work is being done.
2: Yeah, that's right. Well, that's nice of you to say. And it is a, a common theme throughout all my different projects is, you know, one major one is that what you say about ideas, right? Where do, when people have transformative ideas, you know, literally, where do they come from? Like what what is the kind of root of that? And what are the kinds of environments that allow those ideas to happen? And, and crucially, what are the kinds of collaborations?
1: Tell me about that. I get the impression you feel that ideas don't come full-blown full, full blown to the great genius.
2: Yeah, there's, there's kind of two common ways that people talk about you know, transformative ideas and where they come about that are just, it's just misleading. And, and one of them, as you say, is kind of the idea of the lone genius who Ooh. has this eureka moment out of nowhere. And the second is that idea of the eureka moment, right? That you have <laughs> a sudden moment of clarity where this idea, brilliant idea pops into your head. And in fact, that's, if you go back, I mean, all the books that I've written about breakthrough ideas, the, almost all of them follow a completely different pattern, which I, I called years ago, I called the slow hunch, which is, you know, instead of a light bulb moment or an aha moment, you you get this inkling that there's something worth exploring or some idea out there. You don't really know why. You don't know why you're you're obsessed with this, but you're drawn into it. And it stays in that kind of hunch state for months, for years, in some cases for a decade or more, in some of the people that I've written about. And it's only over time to, that that it actually kind of crystallizes into something more powerful. So if you set up your life looking for eureka moments and looking for epiphanies, you you, you actually won't succeed. What you want to do is cultivate these like hints that are floating around, because uh, that's what that's what the truly transformative ideas are going to come from. I
1: think people like me promote that idea to some extent because when we talk to people who have worked with big ideas the tendency always is to look for the epif- epiphany moment. When did you first become involved? In what made you want to be a scientist? And what made, How did you discover quantum mechanics? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: you know, it, it's true. I think what happens is it's a narrative thing, right? It The story is better. The apple fell from the tree and suddenly Newton had right, a right, theory of gravity, right. right? It makes her a nice story. And, and those moments, I, I should be clear, those moments when people talk about them, they— They do happen on some level, but they're almost always preceded by this long period of the hunch that is kind of preparing the mind for the idea. And actually, you know, it's funny. I've written about this twice now, including in this new book, in in Darwin's notebooks, where he comes up with uh, the theory of natural selection in in the late 1830s. He had always told the story of this idea, maybe the most important scientific idea of the 19th century, as a eureka moment that he's sitting there in his study one late night in 1838, and he, he's reading Malthus on population. And the idea for natural selection just pops into his head. This is the way he described it. Oh. But he kept these incredibly uh, detailed notebooks and journals, and he writes down all of his fragmentary ideas, all of his hunches. He argues with himself a lot. And it's clear that he has the idea in, in some semi-conscious form for six months before the night of the epiphany. And he's just not fully aware of it, but he's writing all these things down that could be taken from like a modern, you know, kind of evolution textbook. Um, and he continues kind of teasing out the idea for another six months, really. And so even Darwin himself wanted to condense the story down into an epiphany. That's
1: such an interesting ex- experience to be edging up on something that is a fresh look at the world. Yeah, You get a floater that comes by. yeah. With a new way of looking at it and you say, Oh yes, very nice. And then it goes away. And you don't you don't realize you had that valuable thought until maybe you get it five more times. And then you say, well, I gotta pay attention
2: to this. It's a great argument for writing everything down. I've kept this <laughs> this single document uh, that was originally a Word document, and now it's a Google Doc, so I could visit it anywhere online. But it's one document where I write down every random idea I have for anything, whether it's a book idea or, a, you know, a startup idea or a TV show idea, whatever it is. I write it all down in there. And... Uh, You know, fifty percent of them are terrible. (laughs) You know, fifty percent of them are like, how many glasses of wine did I have when I wrote that? You know, it's that kind of thing. But this document is now longer than it's like ninety thousand words long, so it's longer than any of my books. I've been keeping it for ten years, fifteen years, or something like that. And what I really try and do, this is the key thing, is to go back and reread it every six months. You read a book length. Well, you can skim it pretty quickly. Like I mean, you know, it's. But what you find is that idea that you had in two thousand thirteen that didn't make a lot of sense in 2013 because you didn't have the full thought in your head or you hadn't met somebody who completed the idea or the technology wasn't there for whatever it is. Suddenly in 2019, it has all this resonance, but you would have forgotten about it if you hadn't one written it down and hadn't gone back and revisited that.
1: Now, what about the bad ideas or the ideas that seem bad? Do they suddenly glow in a new look
2: years later? Some of them, some of them do, and some of them just stay persistently bad. That's, <laughs> that's the way it works, you know. And actually, though, that's there's another thing that I'm really interested in in terms of the the blind spots that people have, where they they they're bringing in their field, they're inventing something new, they're you know creating some new scientific discipline, whatever it is, but somehow, despite their genius, they fail to see something. That with hindsight turns out to be really crucial. That you know, five mm-hmm. years later, they're like, "Why couldn't I see that?" And in uh, there's a great story in in the, that I told in um, how we got to now about the show and and the the book that I wrote about kind of history of innovation that, about this French inventor in the middle of the 19th century who invented uh, a, for the first time. A device that could record audio, record sound waves. He in got a, what century? In, in, in 1851, he got a patent for this device. It was mm. called the phonograph, the self-writing of sound. Now, if you know something about the history of audio technology, Edison famously invents the phonograph 25 years later. Mm. We've only heard about Edison. We haven't heard about this French guy. And the reason why is that he had a blind spot. He'd done all this amazing—he was a generation ahead of Edison. But he failed to include one key feature in his device. A microphone. Playback. Oh, playback. Playback. Just you as couldn't bad. hear what was recorded, right? <laughs> and this this turns out to be a highly sought after feature in people <laughs> purchasing audio equipment, right? You know, and and what I love about it is that he it wasn't that he was trying to add that feature. It, he was so thoroughly in his blind spot that he never even thought about it. He was trying to create an automated dictation machine, basically that people would speak and record their words, and then we would learn to read the sound waves that were kind of oh. drawn there, you know. And he never thought about trying to turn it into playback, and it was actually. If you think about it, it was kind of an interesting bet. Like maybe if you could see the sound waves, we would learn how to read that kind of alphabet and you would have an automated shorthand machine, basically. Yeah, you could get straight to text. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, human beings don't have that capability. We still don't have that capability in our brains. Uh, but I think, and and here's here's where we get to the kind of collaboration piece. I think his biggest problem was that he was really working alone. And if he'd been working with somebody who had a different angle on it or different perspective like you know what you got here (laughs) that kind of thing yeah well if like imagine he'd been working with a musician eventually the musician would have said hey i like what you're doing but like what if i could like hear my violin you know that i've recorded that would be (laughs) really cool you know and so that that's part of it is like you know sometimes we have these great hunches but they're limited by some kind of blind spot but if we surround ourselves with people who who bring different perspectives to the problem we're wrestling with or, d- or the decision we're wrestling with. Th- they end up widening our, uh, our perspectives. That's a huge part of the idea of kind of intellectual diversity and diversity of experiences shaping the way we so see the world.
1: Do we keep hearing from studies of um, office, yeah. office workers, diversity is so important for decision-making. Yeah. Uh, and not just because it's there, but because it's profitable. You get you get better decisions, and you you get better big ideas. You're saying too through diversity.
2: So it's one of the places where there's a clear intersection between the the work that I've done over the years on innovation, and then the work that I'm doing now with this new book on decision making. So one shared theme is the value of diversity in both those those situations. And and I think you just said it perfectly there. We celebrate diversity in our society appropriately um, for reasons that have to do with tolerance or a quality of opportunity or a quality of representation. We want to have a diverse group of leaders. We want to have a diverse Congress. We want to have a diverse leadership in our corporations, whatever, because we want to, you know, have people represented and have opportunity for all walks of life, all of which is great. But there's another point that we should make more often, I think, which is that, one of the most robust findings in the social sciences and psychology over the last 20 years is that diverse groups are just collectively smarter mm. and more original in the way that they think in in both their way of kind of dreaming up new ideas but also in in making complicated decisions that they avoid all the problems of kind of groupthink um, and, you know, homogeneity that you get when you have a group of like-minded people together who are just amplifying each other's beliefs.
1: I think you you said or quoted somebody who said... That a smart group of like-minded people is likely to make worse decisions than a not as smart group of diverse people.
2: There's a great um, kind of psychologist, social scientist named Scott Page, and he has a he has a s- slogan that I love, which is uh, diversity trumps ability. <laughs> and wow! The, and the idea is that if you get a bunch of people who are high IQ people who score well on IQ tests. But they're all from the same background, say. They're mm-hmm. all the same discipline. Um, and then you ask them to solve collectively a problem that's complex or make a complicated decision. And and then you get a lower IQ group of people but who have different backgrounds and different perspectives. They end up uh, being more successful at solving the problem or or making the decision than the allegedly smarter group. Um, so there's this kind of diversity bonus that, that we get um, that uh, I think people don't – quite appreciated enough in a way. And one thing that actually is not, I didn't talk about maybe enough in, in Farsighted, the new book, um, is uh, generational diversity. Um, mm, yeah. Th- that, that you think about a big decision in your life, think about the age span of the people you're talking to about that choice. You know, are they all your peers within three or four years? Or are you talking to somebody who's a generation older and a generation younger? Mm. For years,
1: Arlene and I, have sought out people both much younger and much older. As we get older, it's harder and harder to find anybody <laughs> older than us. <laughs> but
2: people are living longer. It's yeah, okay. They're, yeah, they're out but, there. <laughs> uh,
1: but uh, we we really get a lot out of the presence of that that diversity in age. Yeah, and always have. Let me get back to innovation. We didn't We didn't explore a couple of things there. I love this idea of the, what did you call it, the growing hunch? The, the slow hunch. The slow, slow hunch. hunch. Yeah, yeah. The, that seems to have been at work in the cholera story in London. Yeah. I've, I've heard that story a few times, and it always is a, an explosion of discovery, a, the great moment of epiphany, the yeah. Eureka moment. Yeah. But it, it doesn't sound like it from the way... You tell the story. What, what's the what's the original story? What, what's the story that we hear all the time?
2: Yeah, well, actually, kind of, I lived through that when I when I wrote that book. Um, it's called the Ghost Map. I got into the story because I had heard the popular telling of it, which was that. The cholera was this deadly killing disease in the in the middle of the nineteenth century, and everybody thought it was in the air that people were breathing in some noxious fume. It was called a... the air smelled terrible. Yeah, they, they, so it that was, was a clue. Yeah. Yeah. It was it, London at this point, this t- takes place in London, was the smelliest city the world has ever seen. It was just incredibly <laughs> disgusting. That book is just a dive into how disgusting London is, particularly in the first <laughs> chapter. So if you're squeamish or don't don't read it over dinner if you if you check it out. But um so, because it was so smelly, people understandably thought the smell is causing people to die, and and this disease is being transmitted by something in the air. So it was called the miasma theory, right? This, mm-hmm. and and it was it was one of those theories that was not only wrong, but it actually, in trying to do public health interventions based on the theory. Um, they ended up making things even worse. So they started, they said, okay, people's, this is going to be slightly gross, but people's had these cesspools instead of toilets, and, and they were like, they're causing these smells from, you know, your basement. Um, so we want you to flush all those cesspools into the Thames, which was the primary source of drinking water for the entire city. So, oh I mean, God. a modern day bioterrorist could not have come up with a better scheme for poisoning the city of London than, than what the public health, it was one of the first big public health acts, actually. Um, <laughs> So the story has always been told that this eclectic, rogue, lone genius, uh, to mm-hmm. our point earlier, um, Doctor John Snow, uh, uh, in the middle of an outbreak in in, in his neighborhood of Soho in London, um, which at that point was one of the poorest neighborhoods in London, now it is not. Um, he decides to make this map of the deaths that are happening around him, and he and he creates one of the, one of the most important maps actually in the history of certainly in medicine and, and maybe in the history of cartography in general, where he he puts little black bars at each address where somebody has died. And and if there are 10 people who died there, he puts 10 black bars. And when he looks at the map, this is how the story goes, he sees that there is a, a popular uh, a pump where people would get their water right in the center of all the death. Mm. And so the story goes that he has this aha moment and says wait it's not in the air it's in the water and he goes to the authorities and says look at this map you know the water is killing people we need to shut down this pump and they shut down the pump and people are saved and the world has changed because we finally figured out this big problem so i thought that would be a great book right it's like a a victorian episode of csi or something you know (laughs) there's a killer on the loose and all this stuff and then i went to research it and spent all this time in the archives and reading all this original work that snow had done and Turned out that he had been working on this theory of the waterborne nature of cholera for years, for literally like five years. Like cholera was this hobby of his that he had on the side and he'd started to think that maybe the theory was wrong. And, you know, it had been slowly growing in his mind and the map, which all that happened, but he really – the map was a way of convincing people of an idea that right, had it was been incubating. A, a sales it was a of, marketing vehicle for his yeah. idea in a way. And then the other thing was there was this other guy who was a local minister named named Henry Whitehead, the Reverend Henry Whitehead, who became his collaborator. And because he had great social skills, he was able to connect with all these people who he knew, who was parishioners, and get he accumulated a lot of the data that Snow uh-huh. wasn't able to get. And so here was the story that was about this one lone genius and his breakthrough aha moment, and it turned oh, yeah. out to be a story about collaboration and a story about a slow hunch. It's an incredible story.
1: And speaking of incredible stories, I know you've been waiting for the one about Darwin's wrestling with whether or not to get married, not to mention the defecating duck. So stay tuned, coming up right after this short break. I'm a great believer in the creative power of play, so I especially loved Steve's recent book, Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. The book takes the importance of play one step farther. Play seems, in your view, very important to coming up with new ideas.
2: Yeah, it's related to the slow hunch kind of idea where people start to explore something just for the fun of it Mm. with no real purpose. Um, I mean, a huge amount of modern computing, um, we often tell the story of, you know, the digital computer is coming out of the war effort. But there's also a whole history of computing that involves people doing things just for the fun of it. So in a sense, the first kind of programmable machines were these automatons that were just kind of Toy dolls that would—is that the Mechanical Turk? The, was w- that one? The Mechanical Turk w- was actually a fake automaton because oh, there was, there was right. an actual They're... guy, uh, you know, yeah. hidden away who was playing chess. This was a chess-playing automaton, right? But there was there was a great one in the in the um, 1730s. It was sometimes called the Defecating Duck. There's a, there's a def. Sorry about this. There's a know, defecating... it Sounds like a,
1: a tremendous amount of fun. I...
2: <laughs> it was this mechanical duck that would waddle around and you know quack, and then you could feed it pellets of food and. The the guy who invented it had kind of modeled the internal organs of the duck, and so it would actually excrete out this kind of processed food pellet at the end. And this is what people would do for fun, like in the salons of Paris in, you know, 1730s, watch this artificial and this robot led duck. led to modern computing. Because you had to think about—because you were, you were basically— initially, you were kind of creating this machine to automatically create movement, which was complicated. And then the, this guy, his name was Vaucanson— um, started thinking about whether he could automate a, a, a loom and, and use it to, to create textiles. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, he started to think, well, maybe you could um, program the, the, the loom where you'd have different routines that would say, okay, make this pattern, and now make this pattern. You could kind of swap out um, instructions, basically, mm-hmm. for the machine. And he didn't quite solve the problem. But then 50 years later, um, Jacquard... Uh, building on what this earlier guy had done, decided to use punch cards um, to to program a loom and invented the Jacquard loom, which was the first truly kind of programmable machine. And then Charles Babbage, who invented the first programmable computer, saw this loom and thought, "Well, what if you could instead of making you know pretty fabric, what if you could use that to actually do computation and math?" And that's that's where it starts. So it really and, starts and, with a <laughs> defecating duck and, and and beautiful fabric. So this sounds like
1: delight. Amusement mm. playing playing a big part yeah. in the sustenance of an of, uh, of an innovation. That we stick with the innovation, we arrive at the innovation to start with for some apparently meaningless sense of delight, and that keeps us at it until somebody says, "Wait, we can use it like this." Yeah. But what about play itself? Play in the process of getting an idea. I when I read the descriptions of. Uh, Watson and Crick coming yeah. up with the structure of DNA, yeah. constantly building models out of whatever they're yeah. building them out of. They they can switch out the parts and try different things. I thought they must be at play at that. So I was interviewing Jim Watson, mm. and I said, did play play a part in your discovery of the structure? And he said, no, no, it was very— uh, we were very prepared, and he didn't like the idea of play. But, I, I mean, I wonder if he was playing and didn't yeah. want
2: to face it. That's a fascinating response that he had, because um, I think there is a sense in which people think it somehow delegitimizes what they're doing. You know, mm-hmm. if it's play, then that's more—I'm a serious scientist something like that. But, what, I mean, what what play really involves, if you think about all the things that we put under the umbrella of play— it, it involves a kind of like an openness to surprise and mm. and delight, right? Yeah, you know, the, the yeah. reason spontaneity. why spontaneity, yeah. And it, in in the book I wrote about play in Wonderland, I t- I talk a lot about like that that we have. This is a kind of a neuroscience thing, right? We have a deep seated, you know, ancient brain chemistry that r- rewards. Um, our minds or stimulates our minds when we experience something that surprises us, right? We're constantly walking Mm -hmm. around the world, making predictions about what's going to happen next. And when something diverges from those predictions, we see something new, there's this dopamine-regulated kind of experience. We're like, that was interesting. I I need to pay attention Mm -hmm. here.
1: The idea, this is a really fascinating idea to me, the idea that play is a a dopaminergic response (laughs) to surprise. And that that play itself, the notion of diving into a playful set of Mm. experiments that you you don't know if they're going to lead anywhere. But you're drawn forward perhaps by the process which is pleasurable because it's playful.
2: You know, one of the things that is most predictive of a a species, including most famously humans, of their – capacity for kind of innovation and problem solving as an adult is how much they play as a as a newborn or as a as a child oh, really? in their early years right so it's something that really mammals do you know much more than any other uh kind of class of creatures on uh, on the earth and when you see and and parents will often you know kind of play with their young and the idea is if you are trying to raise your offspring for a world in which There are just a fixed set of strategies where you just do this, and this is the only way we know how to kind of get by, and we're just following this kind of evolutionarily programmed set of practices, then play is not the way to do that. Mm. But if you're trying to train a mind to be flexible and adaptable and resilient and open to change and, you know, kind of capable of solving problems on the fly when new situations arise— that's what play is great at. Too,
1: and that, that'll help you grow. And that helps you grow. Help yeah, you, yeah. Help you uh, deal with questions, problems, challenges that yeah. can't be predicted at the moment. Exactly. Because you have more flexibility to, to exactly. deal with the unknown.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and challenging your existing hypotheses. That's the whole thing about surprise, right? You, you've built this theory of how the world works, and then somebody shows up and— makes a sound or shows you a color or a pattern or fabric or an optical illusion or a defecating duck that you've never seen before, and your mind goes, wow, I had not thought that was possible. And I think you
1: boil this all down into the idea that if you want to know what the next big thing is, look for where people are having fun. Yeah.
2: it's You know, it's like, I remember I was kind of writing that bit right after the summer when everyone went crazy with Pokemon. And yeah. everybody's like running around in these cities, including my kids, you know, chasing these imaginary like, <laughs> Japanese <laughs> monsters or animals or whatever Pokemon are. And it looks like a ridiculous waste of time on some hand. But but you know that was a first glimpse of whatever the augmented reality future is when we're going to be walking around cities with all this extra information about People or places or what's around us. And the first vision of it was kids, you know, playing this silly-seeming game. But you've got a glimpse of the next 20 years, I'm sure, in that experience. Life is fun. Yeah.
1: How does this all relate? It seems to me it relates a lot to making decisions. When we make decisions, that's when we're doing what I was thinking of before. We're often of two minds. And we've got to get both of those minds to collaborate.
2: Yeah. What's the worst way to make a decision and what's a good way to make a decision? <laughs> well, I think part of it is to recognize there are different classes of decisions in life, right? There, there are lots of day-to-day decisions that you really – you can go with your gut on and you can make easily. But there are these kind of threshold decisions that you have – you know, every now and then, where they really do have long-term consequences, and they and they involve a whole. I like, can in the book I call them um, full spectrum decisions, like an audio kind of metaphor of like they involve the full spectrum of what it means to be human. Like they're about your personal life, your emotional life, your economic life, your kids, your you know your belief system. All they all kind of converge into a decision like this. And when we get to those decisions, I think we don't want to just um, we 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 don't want to go entirely with our gut because our gut. is not yet informed enough. We want to go through the exercise of exploring all these different options. And it actually – this is the thing that that connects back to Darwin. So in those notebooks that Darwin kept in in the 1830s, in the middle of wrestling with the theory of natural selection, there are these two facing pages that he kind of interrupts his scientific musings to weigh a different kind of idea, which is should he get married? And he basically creates a pros and cons list mm. for whether it's in one page says not marry another page says marry, <laughs> and he writes down a list of like what will happen, you know, in both in both scenarios and what good and bad things. and And it's a very funny list, like it's reproduced in the book if people are interested in it. But well, you know, he has some things like you know, if he gets married, he'll he'll hopefully have children. You know, if it please God, he says, which is interesting because he ultimately became agnostic. But on the on the other side, in favor of uh, uh, of not marry, one of the things is um, conversation of clever men in clubs. He <laughs> would miss that. He <laughs> would miss that. Yeah. Well, let me let me get personal about it and see if you can help me with this. A few years
1: ago, we were trying to decide which apartment we should take. Mm. They were in two different neighborhoods. Mm. And I made a pro and con list. Yeah. Um, on on the negative side, one apartment didn't have grocery shopping nearby. Right. I didn't know how we were going to feed ourselves. Right. It had nice views, and the others and the other apartment uh, had grocery shopping, but had even better views. Yeah, but yeah. there were there were negatives on both sides. I can't remember all the negatives, but what I tried to do was wait.
2: That's the key. Wait the
1: things. Yeah. It turned out the more I looked at the list, the more I felt the grocery shopping should get a much higher value than even the view. Yeah. Yeah. But as it turned out, life had its own way of working. The grocery store that was so valuable to me closed. <laughs> and the view changed because they started building buildings that blocked the view of the river. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, that part I cannot tell. You know, but I, I had a, a decision that was similar, although the geographic span of it was bigger, which was that and this is in a way what got me started writing this book along with that Darwin quote is uh, that I, my version of a midlife crisis when I turned 40, 41 was I got obsessed with the idea, having lived in New York my entire life, that I needed to live in California for some stretch of time. And that and that it would be a good thing for our family, and I was tired of winter, and I wanted more nature and all that stuff. And my wife was not interested in all. She didn't know anybody in California. She did not have the California bug. And... and, and so we had this whole long kind of decision process that I'm not sure we did very well, but um, it got me thinking about how we make choices like that. And it's a big choice, and there's so much at stake in it. Um, and I think part of what you did is right in the sense that the, the biggest problem with the simple pros and cons list is that idea of weight, right? It, it For Darwin, presumably having kids was more significant than clever conversation of men in clubs. Mm-hmm. Maybe not, but I think probably <laughs> it was. And the pros and cons list doesn't quite do that. You're just like, well, this one is longer than this one, so I should choose this one, you know. But um, and it also doesn't scale up in in situations where there may be like you know three or four or five options on the table. It's very hard to do a pros and cons list like that. So there there are some techniques actually that I mean we don't want to get into them I think here, but that that are that are you know you actually would use a spreadsheet right you kind of create a model yeah. and, you, and you give weights to all the different values a little bit like what
1: ben franklin did when he gave weights to things but he would uh, he would trust the weight that he gave it yeah when i whereas in real life i found that i gave it a weight and then the more i thought about it the more i began to realize every yeah. time i'd add up mathematically, how, you know, yeah. the weights, uh, the negative weights against the positive weights. And I'd come up with a conclusion, oh, you, well, you really want this apartment? I'd say, I don't know, I really care about that grocery store more than I thought I did. And I'd change the weight of it.
2: <laughs> the loss of this grocery store is clearly weighing very heavily. We want to I, devote the rest of our time to working I'm, through I, this. <laughs> I'd like you to
1: form a committee with me about my neighborhood. How did it work out with you and your wife in California?
2: It, you know, in the end, it worked out well, but it was it was tough for a while. We One of the things that I think is important in in making complex decisions like this is is trying to be this is the creative part of it. Like a lot of times you approach a decision and you're like, should we do this or not? And oftentimes the the best solution is actually this third or fourth option that you haven't thought about that is out there and you need to go through that exploratory kind of innovative process to kind of discover that other option, right? And so in our negotiation, basically, instead of it just being like we're going to move there forever or we're going to stay in New York forever, we ended up coming up with this third way, which is we'll move for two years and if she wants to move back, no questions asked, we'll She can pull the ripcord and we'll move back. And so we'll go into it as a sense of it'll be a two-year fun adventure. We'll live somewhere else. And she had the confidence that she would get back to her friends and to New York that she loved Mm -hmm. and the pedestrian lifestyle and the grocery store that (laughs) she loves on the block. (laughs) All those things that we value in New York. And I went to it. I was able to think, well, like, hey, look, if she likes it, then maybe we'll stay. And we ended up staying for three years. Um and the first six months were not fun at all. She was not happy at all. But she came to really appreciate it, and and uh, and now we still spend a lot. We, moved, we did move back, but we spent a lot of time out there still, and our kids have gotten this nice, you know, outdoorsy with Brooklyn Street Smarts kind of mix, um, which has been good for them growing up. They became big surfers, and so it, it, it was good in the end. That sounds a little like your advice to uh, not, be
1: stuck with two choices. Yeah, or even uh, one the, choice
2: like a whether or not kind of choice. Whether or not to yeah. do
1: something, there's there are other ways you can come in at it sideways and see other options.
2: It's kind of about storytelling too because mm. you're telling the story about the future and you're imagining different stories, right? You know, so when you're contemplating a decision like this, tell tell three stories um about this path you're looking at one where things turn out well, one where things don't turn out that well, and then one where things get weird. <laughs> and that yeah, exercise... That's if, the one that's real. Yeah, but <laughs> even, even if it doesn't happen, like that exercise of trying to imagine what the weird outcome would be yeah. is 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 playful in some ways and, and illuminating. And then the, the other thing that actually I wasn't fully aware of until I started writing this book is, is how important decisions are to... The stories we read or that, that we watch, um, that that's a lot of great. Some of the, my favorite narratives and in, in novels, or in television or movies, are stories where the real kind of narrative drive comes not from like who is the killer or you know like will they win this battle, but rather this character has a really hard choice to make mm. and. In a way it's interesting. I mean I know you you had Paul Bloom on uh, mm-hmm. a, a while ago with, with his against empathy book but it's a it is a form of empathy in the sense that yeah. you you enter into the mind of other people and watch them make choices and I do think that that on some level makes you a better decision maker. And uh, interestingly like as as the book was done basically um what we decided is with our oldest son who was 16 to um watched the great TV series Friday Night Friday Night Lights, um, the kind of Texas football series. And I hadn't realized it, I'd seen it before and I hadn't realized it until we watched it again that every episode, it, there's, a, there's a decision at the center of it. Like the coach, you know, wants to do something with the team, but the town is against it and his wife is mad at him about something and he, there's a race issue with one of the kids that he's trying to figure out away. And what makes the plot compelling is that he comes up with a you know, a solution to this complicated, challenging decision—that that some kind of compromise that makes it work, or that he imagines a third way that gets him out of the bind that he that he's in, or she's in, depending on the character.
1: My wife and I are binging now on a an Israeli television series called Sh- Shistel, I think that's the name. Huh. And uh, it every scene is. Good people wrestling with hard decisions. Right. It's interesting that I'm becoming aware of the power of a story about decision making. Yeah. That sounds like a quiet <laughs> occupation. It's not like <laughs> riding a horse into town and cleaning up the town with your six guns. <laughs> but it's it's a powerful thing to yeah. have to choose between your loyalty to one ideology or lifestyle and your your loyalty to your family or whatever the choice has to be. Yeah. We, I guess we're faced with that all the time
2: and, and when it gets boiled down into a good story, it's very involving. In a sense, these things are simulations, right? We don't have—we don't yet have a computer program that we can run that would say, simulate my move to California, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, I tried to work one out when I was figuring out the apartment, and I, I gave up yeah, on it. It just—it doesn't do—but but novels, in a sense, are these simulations. And actually, there's—I mean, you, you, you've you always been so great in your interest in, in the brain science, like— one of my favorite discoveries in writing this book is this whole um, new understanding of the brain that's emerged in the last 20 years about the, what's called the default network. Oh, I love that. And it, it, it basically, it's crazy, beautiful example of serendipitous discovery in science when they first had the fMRI and PET machines that allowed you to see activity in parts of the brain mm-hmm. in real time. Um they, all these researchers were like, this is fantastic. We can now figure out what parts of the brain are active when someone is identifying a face or doing mental math or mm-hmm. listening to music, whatever it is. And so they stuck everybody into the scanners and had them do whatever they were studying. But they, they needed a control because there's so much activity in the brain anyway. So they needed an example of the brain doing nothing, and then they could compare it to the brain doing something, and they could figure out you know, the difference. So they stuck people in the, in the scanners and said, now just sit there and don't do anything. And then they got the results back from the scanners. and it turned out that when people were instructed to sit there and do nothing, their brain was more active than it was given than when it was given a task. That's when the good stuff is happening and and it was more active in the evolutionarily modern parts of the brain, like the most human parts mm. of the brain. And so then they're like, what is going on? And for for a while, they just thought it was a mistake. They were like, something's wrong with our scanners, <laughs> yeah. but everybody kept having the same results. And eventually they realized that, this is this part of the brain that was lighting up it's called now called the default network because it kind of the brain seems to default to this and what people are doing during that time is is daydreaming and mind wandering and and sometimes called cognitive time travel where they build simulations hmm. of you know future events based on recent past events you're you're automatically at play yeah, you're playing. Yeah, you're f- this fabulous kind of out making up. Yeah, yeah. playing yeah. scenario, and and then the body kind of tests each scenario with its emotional response. So you mm. imagine what might turn out, and you think about, oh, that would make me feel bad, or that you would get make a feel cramp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we th- there's an argument now that that this is this may be one of our kind of superpowers as a as a species. We mm. don't think you know even our close relatives among the primates have much of a sense of the future at all, and and I think that has a really important lesson for us on a day-to-day level, which is carve out time to, to let your mind wander.
1: Well, I could talk to you all day. I I, I would love to. In fact, we, we ought to get together sometime and just talk.
2: Yeah, or just sit there and mind wander together. Yeah, seven. that's right. That's right. right. Thank you. So
1: we, we usually end our talks with this, a list of seven questions, quick questions yeah. that we hope get quick answers. You, you game for this? Yes,
2: absolutely. Okay, number one, what do you wish you really understood? I am kind of, I think I'm going to spend my whole life trying to understand really where ideas, new ideas come from. That that I think I've just cracked the surface of that, but the the source of creativity and its kind of roots, I, 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 I'm going to be pursuing that kind of mystery, I think, for the rest of my life. Well, I look forward to what you come up with. What do you wish people understood about you? I, I think the, the, the thing that most this is common of folks who have had some kind of success in, in your life is that the feeling on the inside is always... I am a complete imposter. <laughs> you know, where you're just like, I always have this kind of thought in the back of your mind, like, yeah, well, that book was fine, but that's probably the last good book that I'm ever going to write. And, you still, after all these yeah, good books, yeah, you have that No, you totally thought. do. Yeah, and I think it, it keeps you driving, you know. Try, I try to keep up. But
1: you want people to know
2: this about you? Maybe I don't. Maybe that's a terrible mistake. Delete that. <laughs> okay, next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Well, I, I guess... When I first went on, just recently, book tour for Farsighted, I hadn't thought about this at all, but I write this book about decision-making, and I go on, you know, kind of call-in radio shows, and I talk about all this stuff. And then people call in with a live question, and the question is, so my wife and I are trying to decide whether we should have a second kid— should I? You know, like, like I was a, like, oh no, I'm like an advice columnist now or something like that. It's like, I wait, I don't, I don't, I didn't want to get into this business. So.
1: <laughs> Unexpected too. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: Oh, uh-huh. I, you know, I generally have, I, 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 because I've written about so many different things, I have a very wide, but maybe thin knowledge of the world. Like I know a little about a lot of things. And so whatever I, I somewhat pride myself on this. I said, you get into that cocktail party conversation or whatever the person does, like I have just enough knowledge to like actually get in there and say, well, that's interesting what you just said about ant colonies. I happen to have written a chapter about ant colonies (laughs) in a book, you know, whatever. (laughs) Um, And so you can kind of throw them off guard a little bit when you do that.
1: Good. Next question. Is, Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy?
2: I'm having a hard time feeling empathy for our current president, I have to yeah. tell you. You know, yeah. I, I I think about it a lot, like how how much I um, – I generally I, – I'm a very optimistic and I, I think uh, empathetic person. Um, but there, there have been some times where it's been hard to do that. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? Yeah. <laughs> carrier pigeon would be a great option. It's – I think this is actually one of the weakest things about me is that I and I've tried to get better at this is that I have a I don't really like conflict mm-hmm. and so I do have a tendency to avoid difficult conversations whether it's bad news or I'm being critical of something that someone else has said and and I and I, I have learned that when I actually go and do them that I'm actually pretty good about at at, at executing on the delivering the bad news or making the conversation work. Um, but I still feel that gut reaction of like, if I could deliver this by <laughs> carrier pigeon, I, I would. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: it's just a thought. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that leads into the last question: What if anything would make you end a friendship?
2: I, you know, I think it's the classic thing. I've had a couple of situations where there was just a basic trust issue, where just mm-hmm. you find somebody who's just not telling the truth to you. It's mm-hmm. just so hard to figure out what's going on and second guess when you don't have the basic validity of this person who's allegedly my friend is not is not being truthful so that's mm-hmm. a that's a pretty big deal breaker
1: well I sure have loved this conversation me too so thank much you. fun yeah really fun thank you this has been clear and vivid at least I hope so My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Stephen Johnson is the author of 11 books, including such bestsellers as Farsighted, Wonderland, where Good Ideas Come From, and The Ghost Map. He's also the host of the PBS series How We Got to Now and the podcast American Innovations. To find out more about Stephen, please visit his website at StephenBerlinJohnson.com. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Coston. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at alanalder. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Pardi Sabetti, a young scientist who minds the human genome for its secrets. Her breakthrough work helped tackle an outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus in Africa. She approaches her work with a sense of play, and she's also the lead singer in a rock band. I was the kid who hung out with a math teacher and did, like, science problems for fun. And I was the girl who played football at lunch with the boys. I-, I guess the one thing I say about growing up in a different culture is that you don't know the rules of that culture, and so you break all the rules, and I think that was great for me. So I did get kind of picked on a lot, but not for being uh, from a different country, but just for being strange. A young woman who's anything but strange, Pardi Sabeti. Next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these podcasts, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.